I do think that there's a lot more interest in sort of understanding residents' role in the urban forest, and municipalities are in the early stages of trying to sort of figure out what residents are doing and then how they can encourage residents to behave in ways that will help municipalities meet their goals. So for instance, I'm on a working group in the city of Toronto that is hoping to develop a tree planting strategy. And this is including not only the public land that city urban forestry is traditionally focused on, but really for the first time, they are thinking about private lands and trying to understand what is it that residents are doing and hopefully I can add some insights into that, and then figuring out, okay, what are strategies we can use to then encourage residents to help the city of Toronto meet their urban forestry goals. Seeing the urban forest for the trees. Trees are part of our everyday landscape, even in a big city like Toronto. But sometimes we pass by these plants in the urban forest without giving them much thought. They are, however, of significant interest for today's guest on View to View, Professor Tenley Conway, and have been a preoccupation of hers for the last few years. On today's show, Tenley talks about her work examining how human-environmental interactions impact the urban forests in cities and suburbs, and the diverse group of actors, or the residents, that end up shaping what she refers to as our urban ecosystem. We also touch on the benefits of trees, but also some of the disservices of trees when they cause issues or become problematic for residents. With this second season of the podcast focused on women in academia, Tenley also talks about finding balance in a busy academic career. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T, Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Tenley Conway is a professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and a faculty member in the Graduate Department of Geography and Planning and at the School of Environment at U of T. Her research aims to explore the role of residents in shaping the urban forest, and more generally, the relationship between human activity and the physical environment. She considers questions related to the efficacy of current management approaches, the ecology of human-dominated landscapes, and interaction between urban forest and urban agriculture. Her work has been supported by a Canada Foundation for Innovation grant, and for over 12 years, Tenley's work has been consistently funded with grants from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. So I know that your research covers a broad range of topics, including urban vegetation, urban forests, land use, and also how residents play a role in shaping the urban forest. And so I was wondering if you could give a bit more detail about the various topics that you cover in your work, perhaps with a couple of examples of current projects with which you are involved. Sure. So broadly, my work looks at human environmental interactions in urban areas. And the way I define urban areas, it includes both cities, but also suburban and exurban landscape. So landscapes where humans are a dominant force and where there's lots of residential land uses. And in particular, I take an urban ecosystem approach to my work. So understanding these urban landscapes as an ecosystem of biotic and abiotic interactions. But of course, humans are a really big component 
component of that system. And when you say biotic and abiotic, what does that mean? Um, so living organisms and then the physical environment within which they live. And so within an ecosystem, we imagine these different organisms, so different species, interacting with each other, and they interact with their physical environment, with where they live. And in an urban ecosystem, we have that same situation, but then humans, of course, are a very big part of those interactions. But nonetheless, in an urban ecosystem concept, we think of humans as part of or embedded in the system and not this sort of outside factor that is simply influencing the system. And so I'm really interested in how humans interact with other parts of the urban ecosystem where they live. And I've done this the last five years or so, primarily focusing on urban forests. Urban forests are simply defined as all of the trees and other vegetation in an urban area. And so I'm really interested in what trees are in an urban ecosystem, where are they, how healthy are they, uh, how big are they, what species are they, and of course a lot of those questions the answer is dependent on humans. So humans making decisions about uh, where to plant trees, where to cut trees down, which species to plant, and the level of care that is given to those trees. Because I'm thinking we're overlooking the Credit River and there's trees outside of my window here, this is considered an urban ecosystem. An urban ecosystem, and those trees are part of the urban forest. So trees in our ravines and our parks, but also individual street trees. If you have trees in your front or backyard, that's part of the urban forest. So it's a pretty expansive definition. And when we think about that, all of these trees in all of these different settings, it becomes quite apparent that the trees in your yard are very much dependent on the decisions you've made and the decisions that people who perhaps lived in your house before you made and whether those trees will exist in 20 or 50 years is also dependent on you and anyone who lives in your house after you. So I'm interested in precisely that, the decisions you and the hundreds of thousands of other residents in an urban landscape are making about their trees in their yard. Urban yards are relatively small spaces, but you have this cumulative effects. So you have these hundreds of thousands of residents making decisions about very small pieces of land that then add up and really shape characteristics of the urban forest as a whole. And residents, of course, when we think about residents across the GTA or even just in Mississauga, they are a very diverse group of actors within the urban forest. Obviously, they're diverse in terms of their own individual characteristics, so sociodemographics, their sort of broader outlook in the world. But when we think about the urban forest, there's also a lot of diversity in terms of knowledge and attitudes towards trees, how people want their yard to look whether people have the time, the money, other resources to make the yard look the way they want or not. And so we end up with a very diverse group of actors, residents, who are making these admittedly fine-scale decisions on one or two trees in their yard, but again, cumulatively have a tremendous impact on the overall urban forest or larger system. So an example of a project that I've been looking at related to residents' interactions with the urban forest is there's a lot of interest right now in diversifying the urban forest, of planting more species and increasing species richness or the number of species present in the urban forest, uh, in part because 
We think that this is a good way of trying to minimize impacts from pests and diseases. If you have a diversity of trees present, then the likelihood that any one pest or disease outbreak is going to have a major impact is reduced. And so there's a lot of interest right now in getting residents to also support a diversity of tree species in the urban forest. But most residents aren't that knowledgeable about tree species and really aren't that interested in supporting these goals. Or maybe that's the wrong way of saying it. Maybe it's not that they're interested, but they have other priorities that come first. They're more concerned with making sure that their yard looks the way they want their yard to look and that they can engage in the activities that they want to engage in their yard. So it's more of aesthetics driving the decisions. It's aesthetics and what we refer to as sort of functional considerations. So not only does the yard look beautiful or the way you want it to, but if you want to have room for your children to play, you have that. If you're interested in vegetable gardening, you have that space to do those sorts of activities. And so a project that a master's student, Vivian Yip, and I have been working on is trying to develop a what we are referring to as a socially relevant metric of tree diversity. So that isn't based on these sort of ecological measures of diversity, number of species or percent of native species, but rather is related to the attributes, the aesthetic and functional attributes that we know residents prioritize when they make decisions about trees in their yards. And so we've developed this metric and we argue that when urban forest practitioners and policymakers are developing strategies to communicate with residents, that they should really be focusing on this idea of aesthetic diversity, because that resonates with most residents in a way that residents may appreciate the need for species diversity, but aren't going to be prioritizing that when they're actually making decisions. But if we can sort of use the ideas and language that we know residents are making decisions on, that we argue it's a more effective pathway to ultimately get that diversity that experts want to see in the urban forest. Right. And then they're also making decisions for, let's say, a tree that would do well in that environment. Because sometimes I've heard people are planting trees that really aren't native to this region and like they wouldn't do well. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of what you just said is a complicated idea because (laughs) there's a lot of discussion about the value of native species. And um, when we think about sort of maintaining ecological health or ecological integrity, native species and having an abundance of native species is very important. The conversation becomes much more complicated when we're thinking about urban environments because the conditions within urban environments are often quite different than the conditions that existed pre-urbanization. And so in some cases, species native to a place are just not going to survive once it's urbanized. And in some cases, and in urban forestry in particular, we have trees that aren't necessarily native to the region, but we know do really well in urban areas, particularly in this poor site conditions along roadways where they're going to be exposed to a lot of pollutants, a lot of road salt, but they're going to survive. And so there's a fair amount of debate right now within the urban forestry and broader urban ecosystem literature about how important is it to maintain and promote native species, or should we recognize urban ecosystems as what people are often referring to or increasingly referring to them as novel systems. These are new systems. They have developed, you know, over the last 100, 200 years. 
and we should recognize them as new systems. And so the emphasis on traditional native species is not as important as simply having a diversity of species that fill a variety of roles or functions uh, within the system. Okay, gotcha. And you just made me think also that I know I've seen a lot of trees cut down around here, and I don't know if this is a fair question or even if your work touches on this, but I know that there was this issue of the ash borer beetle you know, I walk into work and I've seen all sorts of trees that were marked and now they're cut down. And so do you have you looked at that at all in your research or? I haven't looked at it directly. It's definitely an issue. Different municipalities have taken different approaches, whether to preemptively remove ash tree or not. Right now, across southern Ontario and really across most of the eastern North America, so the U.S. and Canada, emerald ash borer is an invasive pest, but it it is everywhere. I know in southern Ontario, or at least in the GTA, the assumption is that all ash trees are either currently infected or about to be. So it is a big issue, and it's it's a real challenge right now because ash trees represent or have traditionally represented a fairly substantial portion of the urban forest. So we're losing that, and we're losing that at the same time that a lot of municipalities have adopted really aggressive goals about increasing the canopy cover. So not only is the challenge to increase it, but really there's a challenge right now to maintain it because of the removal of so many ash. I've seen a lot taken down and it has changed the landscape in, I think, quite a few areas around here. One of the topics I was reading about on your website related to urban forest disservices, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this project. Sure. So urban forest disservices or ecosystem disservices is a concept that's related to ecosystem services. And ecosystem services are simply the functions and goods that an ecosystem produces that positively impact human well-being. And so within an urban context, what we mean by this is if we think about the trees or the urban forest, those trees are filtering out air pollutants, they are regulating stormwater, they are creating uh, microclimate effects that are creating more pleasing environments for us. Those trees are providing important services that make the environment around them healthier for us as people. And there has been a tremendous amount of research looking into documenting ecosystem services, both in urban ecosystems as well as other types of ecosystems. This is really occurring over the last 10 years or so. And so there's been a lot of knowledge gained in this area. And related to it, a lot of effort then to communicate these positive ecosystem services, hopefully as a way of ensuring that um, these natural systems are protected. So that we need to be protecting our natural ecosystems, not just for their own sort of value and because it is important to those systems, but because they also help us as humans. And so we sort of have this tremendous amount of research occurring. At the same time, there are ecosystem functions that negatively impact humans. So again, in an urban context, we could think of them as the pollen produced by many plants that causes allergens. We can think of them as the hazards that are created through natural processes. Focusing on trees, that can include things like branches falling on your house or on your car. Um, It can include roots going into sewer pipes or breaking up concrete and making surfaces difficult to walk on. 
And there's a bit of a discussion right now in the literature about whether or not we should sort of give similar or any attention to these ecosystem disservices. And there's a lot of people that basically argue we shouldn't, that traditionally management in urban areas, environmental management, has focused on those ecosystem disservices, often using a different language, talking about risks and hazards, mm -hmm. and that we need to give attention to ecosystem services right now, essentially to rectify the long tradition of focusing just on the negatives and not on the positives that natural features produce for us. So like, but a disservice would be like, say, uh, I've got a huge tree in my front yard and I'm worried that, you know, it's going to be struck by lightning and going to crash through the roof. Is a disservice then sort of preemptively taking that tree out? Well, the disservice would be the tree falls on your roof. Okay. And so, okay. so the, and so the question is, is when we devise uh, management plans, when we are doing research into the urban forest, should we be giving equal attention to those risks as we are giving to all the positive things that that tree is also doing for you? Creating shade, filtering air pollutants, helping with stormwater in your yard. And so we um, did a particular project looking at the impacts of the December 2013 ice storm that occurred in Southern Ontario. And lots of people who lived through that ice storm also remember lots of branches from trees falling down. And in many neighborhoods, those branches then took down hydro wires. And so trees created a set of disservices as a result of the ice storm that were very particular to an ice storm. And there were, of course, then costs associated with the cleanup of those trees, which is also a disservice. And so we did surveys of residents who experienced the ice storm and asked them not only what happened to trees on their property, so what disservices they may have experienced, but also what their attitudes were now to those trees. And what we found was that the ice storm was incredibly impactful. It was an important experience for people. And that many people now saw trees in their property as a risk in a way that they hadn't before. And this included trees that were damaged during the ice storm, but also those that weren't. And so people talked about preemptively removing trees or removing large limbs. So if we had another similar storm, they wouldn't have that damage or that disservice occurring. And so from this research, we argued that People experience disservices. They don't usually label them as a disservice, but they're part of people's experiences with trees in urban areas. And so we can't just ignore them or pretend disservices don't exist and only focus on the positives. We need to acknowledge those disservices because from a management perspective, we need to develop strategies that can mitigate them or that can sort of address them in creative ways. If we just pretend they don't exist, then there'll be this sort of gap between what management expects people to do and then what people do based on their actual experiences. That's very interesting. I wondered also if there are any findings or results that you have come across over the course of your work that you have found particularly interesting or surprising. I think one of the surprising results we found is that we've done a number of surveys of residents across the GTA and in different ways essentially asking them about their attitudes towards the urban forest in general and to trees on their property in particular. And one of the consistent messages that we have received through surveys and interviews with various residents is that older residents are very resistant to planting new trees and are often more interested in removing trees that are already there. 
And this surprised me at first because when we look at, say, the gardening literature, gardening activities really peak in those sort of early retirement years, so kind of mid-60s through mid-70s. And I guess I had just assumed that interest in trees would similarly peak during this time because it's another type of outdoor yard gardening activity. In addition to that, you know, we see a lot of the people who are volunteering in urban forestry events and with urban forest organizations, again, tend to be people who are in those early retirement years for the reasons we see that age group volunteering probably in lots of different ways that they have the time on their hands and the abilities to do that. But I think that trees are different than other plants you have in your yard. And so when you talk to older residents about why they're so resistant to them, you know, they recognize trees are larger than flowers in the flower beds and they last a lot longer and they require a different type of maintenance than flowers do. And that residents are justifiably concerned that they don't have the physical ability to do some of the maintenance, the raking the leaves every fall. They wouldn't be able to take down prune large branches if they needed to. And if they could do that now, maybe they won't then be able to do it in five or 10 years. So it makes sense, their hesitance, but it was not what I was initially expecting. I shouldn't even ask this, but I've heard so much about people who argue about trees on their property because sometimes they've got neighbors, you know, they want to cut the tree down, but it's, it's given nice shade. I've heard there's been little arguments or sometimes they're big arguments about whether or not to keep something. Did you come across that at all? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely an attitude among some people out there that they dislike all trees. But I think a more sort of interesting attitude we've heard expressed a lot is I love trees, but and that but is then usually followed by, I hate that tree, (laughs) or I have a particular problem with that tree. Um, So it's people who in general like trees, are supportive of the urban forest, but also when you're talking about the particular tree in their yard or in their neighbor's yard that is behaving in ways that are annoying or require effort or are stopping people from doing other things they want to do in their yard. It's the particular tree. So it's an interesting thing when we're trying to do surveys and interviews of sort of getting past the widespread, generally positive attitudes people have about the urban forest. Yes, I like trees. I like looking at trees and sort of getting below the surface, which is in part why we focus so much on people's particular yard trees, because then you get into these situations where, you know, someone who may generally love trees also hates the tree in the backyard that's shading their vegetable garden. I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about some of the longstanding research partnerships that you have that are with organizations such as Green Infrastructure, Ontario Coalition, and Local Enhancement and Appreciation of Forests, which the acronym is LEAF. As non-academic collaborators, I was just wondering if you could speak to how they shape the direction of your efforts or how they participate in some of your projects. Sure. So again, because a lot of our research is interviewing and surveying not only residents, but other people, we often refer to them as different actors that are within the urban forest. I found it incredibly useful to partner with non-academic organizations because they are frequently 
comprised of these actors, but also regularly interacting with them in ways that, as a researcher, I'm not necessarily. So to give an example of that, LEAF, who you mentioned, they have a very active backyard tree planting program, originally just in Toronto. It's now expanded out across the GTA. And so, you know, on a daily basis during certainly planting season, they are interacting with residents um, standing in their yard, talking about where a tree could be planted and then helping them plant that tree. And so they have a lot of that sort of local on the ground knowledge about what are they hearing from residents when they have these discussions about tree planting. For the most part, it's not something they've sort of systematically examined, but there's a lot of acquired knowledge with that group. And so working with groups like LEAF, it's been very useful in sort of shaping the types of questions or the types of issues that we focus on uh, when we do our survey and interview work. Okay. And I was wondering how you got into this particular field of study in the first place. So I did my graduate work looking at land use land cover models, and in particular looking at a landscape that was undergoing suburbanization, so suburban development, and understanding how both past but also predicted future patterns of suburbanization was going to impact some of the local environment and local ecology. So the impact in particular on things like water quality and habitat connectivity. Um, But one of the things that sort of frustrated me or was sort of kept popping up in the back of my mind is that a lot of the land use land cover studies I was doing and that I was drawing on, once an area became developed, once it became a suburban house or sort of a more intensive urban area, it was essentially seen as ecologically void. It was empty. You know, it became white space on our maps. And that's not really true. When we look out our windows of our houses or hopefully where we work, you know, we see trees, we see birds, we see natural features, maybe not in the most natural settings. And so I became increasingly interested about, you know, what is present there and what are the factors that go into shaping it? Why do we have trees in certain places and not in other places? And so that's really how I became interested in urban forests. The other thing I say is that before I went to graduate school, I spent a few years studying bats, which are fascinating, awesome creatures. But I also came to appreciate that trees don't move, unlike other organisms that you spend half your time just trying to find them. (laughs) Trees are relatively easy to study because they're there. (laughs) They may be cut down, which is a complication. A tree can disappear overnight because someone comes and cuts it down. But for the most part, (laughs) you aren't spending your time trying to locate them. Yeah. But so then you, but you always had then sort of an interest in like kind of the natural environment though. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That is definitely a longstanding interest. Okay. And so uh, what do you feel is the biggest impact of your work? I think that one of the things because I've spent so much time interviewing and surveying residents over the last few years, I think that that's an important contribution. I hope it's seen as an important contribution sort of from an academic perspective. A lot of the work on in urban forestry focused more on areas that municipal urban foresters have traditionally focused their attention on. So park trees, street trees, not trees on private property. And then there was other work that was occurring that was interested in trees on private property and sort of patterns across cities. But most of that work was looking at a neighborhood scale or above. And while there's some really interesting patterns of unevenness when we talk about the urban forest that occur at the neighborhood level, one of the things that I thought was really missing was that that focusing in on the finer scale, the property level, the homeowner, where decisions are actually made. 
And that even within a neighborhood, driving around my own neighborhood, you know, there isn't an even distribution of trees. Some yards have none, some have many. So I wanted to really understand that fine scale dynamics and sort of emphasizing that if we actually want to understand urban forest dynamics more broadly, we need to really emphasize that fine scale. In sort of a more applied impact, I think it's ongoing. I hope it continues to go. But I do think that there's a lot more interest in sort of understanding residents' role in the urban forest. And municipalities are in the early stages of trying to sort of figure out what residents are doing and then how they can encourage residents to behave in ways that will help municipalities meet their goals. So for instance, I'm on a working group in the city of Toronto that is hoping to develop a tree planting strategy. And this is including not only the public land that city urban forestry is traditionally focused on, but really for the first time they are thinking about private lands and trying to understand what is it that residents are doing and hopefully I can add some insights into that and then figuring out, okay, what are strategies we can use to then hopefully encourage residents to help the city of Toronto meet their urban forestry goals. That sounds wonderful. Coming up, Women in Academia. Tenley talks about the challenges of finding balance in a busy academic career. My last question, I think I've mentioned to you, this season of View to View is a focus of women in academia. And there's been, you know, quite a bit of discussion lately about promoting and supporting women in all types of careers. But so I was just wondering if you've personally come across any challenges in the course of your career, or if you have any words of encouragement for young women who are just starting to embark or maybe think about uh, embarking on a career in academia. Yeah, so one of the things, I think I was really lucky, right after I finished my undergraduate degree and before I started graduate school, I spent a few years working for a woman, a researcher, as her research assistant. And I learned a tremendous amount from her, not only how to do research, but also I think she was a really excellent model of work-life balance. And so sort of as I've gone through my career, I've thought about that. Um, I think she sort of made me realize that I could have a career in research and also have a life. So that was a very valuable lesson to experience. I think the challenges I've had, I'm not sure that they're um, that unique. Um, And in some ways, they're also tied to the greatest benefit of being an academic, which is flexibility. We have a tremendous flexibility in terms of how we use our time and, and when we choose to work and when we don't. Of course, also then the challenges is creating boundaries between when is work time and when is not work time. And so, for instance, before having a child, it was much easier to have less of a boundary that when when I was ready to work, I could work and it didn't really matter what time. And my partner, who's also an academic, understood. And so I took advantage of that flexibility and also it was earlier in my career. And so it also meant that I worked long hours and regularly at nights and the weekends. And then, of course, having a child, suddenly you have these hard boundaries around childcare and you need to leave every day at five o'clock and so sort of figuring out how exactly to do that and in particular I ended up taking eight months of mat leave and my partner took three or four so it was nice that we could both take it but work demands in some ways didn't stop when I was on mat leave and so right away figuring out what those boundaries were but then also going back to work thinking through what the boundaries were. Again, the flexibility, so in terms of advice, I mean, we are incredibly flexible with how we use our time when we work. And so it's, I think it's really just a matter of figuring out 
the schedule that works for you because we have the ability to come up with our own schedules, but also making sure that it's okay and that you are taking time, you know, you are balancing that there is some. So for me personally, this means that I often end work at about 3.30 or 4 when my son comes home, but then I do work again in the evening because that's sort of the schedule that works well for all of us right now. You know, if anything, we're really lucky that we have that flexibility. Other people want it and can't because of their job requirements. But it also means that we also have work that's not always easy to completely put aside. But that's just the nature of it because we can all do work yeah. from home. I mean, now. I think it's also just sort of, yeah, modern work environment. Absolutely. I'm old enough that I used to leave work and not check my email at home. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. And now, like... It's on your phone. Yeah, it's never not being checked. <laughs> I, I hear you. And so I think that sort of wraps up all the questions I wanted to ask you today. I just wanted to thank you so much for coming in and speaking to me about your work. And I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It was great to be invited and I really enjoyed this. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would like to thank my guest, Tenley Conway, for coming to speak about her work and her projects in the Department of Geography at UTM. Thank you to the Office of the Vice Principal Research for their support and for everyone who has expressed their interest in this podcast. Please feel free to get in touch with me. My contact information is on our SoundCloud page. If you have feedback or if there is someone from UTM that you'd like to see featured on View to View. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you.